as we come in our pastoral prayer, a prayer where we lay before the Lord our, our needs, our concerns for, for family, for friends, for loved ones, for our congregation, for our nation. Hear these words that have been written by Asaph, uh, one of the major writers of the Psalms. And I'll work hard at that word Psalms. It's really Psalms is the correct pronunciation. Reading from uh, Psalm 80, this is the word of encouragement to us. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. And of course, the O shepherd of Israel, the real shepherd, the true shepherd, the good shepherd is the Lord. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might. Come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Let's pray. Lord, you have, you have declared that you are the shepherd. And we think, Lord, of, of Jacob who who was converted, who became Israel. And as he looked back on his life, and he'd been a, a liar, a thief, a scoundrel, and yet a man who, who marvelously was brought to the ladder. For you led him, Father, to heaven and to friendship with you. And as he looked back, he saw that all the days, even of his scandalous, deceitful behavior, even in those days, you had been his shepherd who had guided him all the days of his life. And so, Father, we come to you. We recognize, Lord, we're, we're sheep. Sometimes we're not real smart. Sometimes we're kind of stubborn. Sometimes we look too much like my Irish kinfolk. And so, Lord, we, we ask you. You can turn water into wine. You can take a, a few loaves and you can feed a multitude, Lord. You can take a whole people and you can lead them for 40 years and every day you can feed them. And at the end of their wanderings, behold, their sandals never wore out. You are amazing. So, Lord, we would dare. We would be bold this morning to come and say, Shepherd of Israel, touch your sheep. We have beloved ones and friends, Father, who, who need your, your touch. We think of Dr. Barton, how we grew to love him and how we admired him. Now, Lord, as he, as he struggles with this, this illness that has not yet been truly diagnosed, Lord, would you, would you comfort him? Would you unveil the mystery to the doctors? Would you take this faithful servant and yet lead him? We think, Lord, of, of folks like Linda Martin. We think, Lord, of her battle. We think of how that disease can so ravage the body. Think, Father, of how those seeds of death have multiplied in so many of our friends, and how it, it eats up our strength. And so we pray, Father, for comfort, for, for encouragement. We think of Bob Forlow, and we think of that tragic automobile accident. We think of all these months he has continued to battle and even yet without relief. We rejoice that his 
his heart and soul is fixed upon you. We think, Lord, of, of many friends and family who struggle with various illnesses and disease. We think of mothers, of sons, of daughters. We think of grandsons, of aunts, of cousins. We have been touched, Father. We've been touched so cl- close to our, our homes, our hearts. We pray, Father, that in our, in our continued health we may be ministers of comfort to them. We think, Father, of folks who are, who are no longer with us. We think of a mother lost, a father lost, parents no longer here, a brother gone. Father of family who are spread across the nation. We think of days gone by. Perhaps, Father, there is yet a word that we need to say to some of them. Perhaps there is a message of hope that we need yet, Lord, to share with them. We think, Lord, of, of our own congregation. We pray, Father, that you would, you would lead us, Lord, like a shepherd. We need, we need shepherding. We need the, the man of your anointing and appointing. We need, Father, you to give us that one. So we pray for wisdom for the search committee. We pray that you would Unite their minds and hearts as they are our servants for Jesus' sake. We pray, Lord, this morning for our president. We pray for those who are his advisors. We see so many, so many things that disturb us, distress us. We see that unemployment has decreased and we are thankful, Lord, for that blessing. And yet we know that still there are many underemployed. We know that there are many teenagers, young people, graduating, and they do not have purpose and a career. We know that many face a whole new health care system Suddenly, Lord, some of those care elements seem to be beyond financial reach. We look farther at, at our world and we see Afghanistan, we see Iraq, and we feel confused. And we see, Father, the See, Father, the way our nation at times seems to be a bullseye. And so, Lord, we pray for wisdom, for insight, for courage. We think of Congress, Lord, how we pray for for those men and women to have a sense of your guidance to do the right thing. We think, Lord, of our military. They have given so much. So many have returned with physical difficulties and problems. Think of those that are being touched by wounded warrior. We're grateful for that. We think of those that are looking to the VA for help. And we pray, Father, that where you call us to be the messengers of mercy, that we would be that for them. We thank Lord of 
something, denomination that once we were a part of. And we feel, Lord, so far out of step with the decisions we have heard of this last week. And we just have to feel, Lord, we, we feel convinced, Lord, that those are, those are not pleasing, Father, to you. And we think, Lord, of folks like ourselves that are, are still a part of that denomination. We come, Lord, with no stones, for we have enough sins of our own. But we pray, Father, that you would, you would raise up for them, Father, prophets. We thank, Lord, of our, our friends, the Fitzgeralds, as they labor faithfully and successfully in North Africa and Egypt. Rejoice in those difficult environments, Lord where they have been prospered by your hand and where men and women are being raised up for your kingdom. And now, Lord, we would turn our attention to the word that you have spoken, the word that you have revealed, the word that you have given to us. We would ask, Lord, that as the disciples' hearts burned on the road to Emmaus, as Jesus opened the scriptures to them. So, Father, you would open those scriptures to us this morning. We pray, Father, that the meditations of my heart and our hearts and the words of my lips would be honoring to you, my God and my Savior. I pray in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. That was a great hymn we sang about the story. I want you to think of the Bible as history, but I want you to think of it as his story. From Genesis to Revelation, his story of God's dealings with men and women, with boys and girls, his story of how he responds to us, interacts with us, his story of his holiness, his mercy, his love, and his grace. And as you read through that story, I want you to think of it as a string of pearls. And as you read through it, I want you to imagine that each pearl is another piece of his revealing of himself Another piece of his revealing of his beloved son and his invitation for you to pick up that pearl and look at it carefully. And as you read through the scriptures, you might just find that pearl reappears. And as it reappears, it might intrigue you, it might surprise you. And he's saying to you, hey, pick it up again, go ahead, turn it around. Look a little more closely. Look a little more carefully. You're not really looking at this pearl like I want you to. When you get the revelation, you should have strung all the pearls. And it should look so very beautiful. So this morning, I'm going to attempt to string one of those pearls that the Lord has shared with me. So you battle your way through what's left of the brogue. And as one of the brothers said down here, when he's looking down, he told me, I'm not sleeping, I'm really paying attention. So if you start to sleep, at least keep your eyes open. Don't disappoint me. So I'm going to read a series of scriptures. And um, the one from Ezekiel may seem a bit strange, but Lord willing... Uh, that pearl will become a little more clear to you. I'm reading from the, N, the ESV, the English Standard Version. It really doesn't matter what you're reading from there. We're probably quite close. Reading, first of all, from Genesis chapter 2. And I'm reading from verse 7 to verse 9. 
Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Go down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. Go to Genesis 3, to the end of that chapter. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've received the declaration of death. And now these words conclude their time in Eden. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Go over now to the book of Exodus and a couple of short readings from chapter 36, first of all. Two verses there dealing with instructions for building the tabernacle. Verse 8 and then verse 35 of Exodus 36. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. Verse 35. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen with cherubim skillfully worked into all that he made. And then go over to Ezekiel 41. You know, this one's a bit strange. And some of Ezekiel's a bit strange. Verse 13, Ezekiel 41. The Lord is showing Ezekiel the final, great, eternal temple. He's giving him a tour of that temple. Verse 13. Then he measured the temple, a hundred cubits long. Now, a cubit is 18 inches or a foot and a half. So if it's a hundred cubit long, that's 150 feet. A hundred cubits long. The yard in the building with its walls, a hundred cubits long. Also the breadth of the east front of the temple and the yard, a hundred cubits long. Then he measured the length of the building facing the yard that was at the back and its galleries on either side, a hundred cubits. The inside of the nave and the vestibules of the court, the thresholds and the narrow windows and the galleries all around the three of them, opposite the threshold, were paneled with wood all around. From the floor up to the windows, now the windows were covered, to the space above the door, even to the inner room and on the outside, and on the walls all around, inside and outside, was a measured pattern. It was carved of cherubim and palm trees. Palm tree between cherub and cherub. Every cherub had two faces, a human face toward the palm tree on the one side, and the face of a young lion toward the palm tree on the other side. They were carved on the whole temple, all around, from the floor to above the door. Cherubim and palm trees were carved. Similarly, the wall of the nave. Now, you probably remember 
the children's program named Sesame Street. And in Sesame Street, each program was sponsored by a letter of the alphabet. And during the program, the children would be introduced to a word that begins with that letter. And the object was to enhance the vocabulary of the children, a noble venture. Now, this morning, my goal is to enhance your spiritual and your theological knowledge. And so, this morning, the sermon is sponsored by the letter R. I know that's deep in the alphabet. Some of us sometimes have difficulty getting that far. The letter R, removed, reminded, redeemed. Removed, reminded, redeemed. Uh, You know, the Irish like the KISS method. Keep it simple, stupid. You can do this. R, R, R. You have been removed. Genesis 3, we meet an intriguing scene. We find Adam and Eve have been removed from the garden. We find cherubim. We find a flaming sword. Now, my daughter is always interested in what I'm going to preach on when she knows I'm preaching. Dad, what are you preparing? I said, well, I'm going to speak to these dear folks on the lake about cherubim. Oh, yeah, I know all about cherubim. Oh, really? Tell me. Well, see, they're they're little, fat, chubby, overweight, naked babies who have wings. And they're especially seen and present February 14th. And they have a bow and an arrow, Dad. And they go looking for, um, for couples, boys and girls, men and women, who, who feel romantic feelings towards one another. And they take that love potion number nine. And those romantic feelings... Blossom into love. That's Cherry Ben? Yeah. I said, Well, um, these Cherry Ben, Marie, have got a flaming sword, not a bow and arrow. Oh, sword. That doesn't sound like harmony or love or affection. I said, No, it sure doesn't. How many cherubim were there, Marie? Uh, two? Now, most people think there were two because the mercy seat behind the tent in the Holy of Holies, there were two. So folks think there were two. Now, when you say that M, I am, cherubim, cherub is singular. Cherubim, the M, that's plural. And almost anywhere you see M, when a biblical word means plural, Elohim, the I am, our God is three in one. So I don't know that there were two. I think with a flaming sword, we had a brigade. And I don't think there were overweight, fat, naked babies. I think they were soldiers of heaven. I think they were fully clad, equipped, and ready for action. Why? What happened? Well, you know that chapter one, the one we meet is Elohim, the mighty of the gods, the one whose great power from no thing made all things. But when you move to chapter 2 of Genesis, we're given another side of this great and awesome God. 
he becomes Yahweh Elohim, Jehovah Elohim. Not only the, the mighty God, but now he is Lord. He is the one who makes personal relationships and the one who designs and desires to be Lord and leader over those personal relationships, over his creatures, over his creation. And so he comes, and this great and awesome God of chapter 1 becomes, and Barb, you can relate to this, he becomes a gardener. And he plants a garden, carefully, meticulously. Every plant, every shrub, every tree, every blade of grass is carefully designed and created and planted and placed by the gardener. And then he goes to Adam and Eve and he leads them into this garden. He says, Adam, Eve, I have designed, created this garden for you. I want this to be your kingdom. I want you to rule and reign. I want you to enjoy this forever. Adam, look. Look. See over there those, those low-lying green plants? You see the red things? We call that fruit. Eve, you're really going like this. Pluck one of those. They're sweet and juicy. Strawberries. Beyond that, see that kind of little swamp land? Well, you get over close there, and they've also got fruit. Small, deep, scarlet, cranberries. Huh. You see it? That's an apple tree. There's an element. That's an apple tree. Now, that apple tree is different than that apple tree. That is called Granny Smith. That's golden delicious. That is a nice green. That is a golden color on the outside, but it's white inside. Now, this fellow here, you eat that one. Yeah, it, it's juicy, but it, it talks to you. It's got a little twang, a little bite. But delicious. Mmm. Sweet. Oh, oh, look. Look, Adam. Hey, look, look, look. Do you see them? Those are hawks. Those are hawks. They're going to give you all kinds of aerodynamic displays. Ah, oh, they are incredible. Can you hear them? Can you hear them? You know, in centuries to come, one of your, one of your children will, will write the ode to joy. He'll just be, he'll be thinking about the sweet symphony of the birds. This is good. This is good. This is very good. I want you to I want you to enjoy this. I want you to walk through this garden. I want you to rule in this garden. I want you to walk with me and talk with me. I want you to learn more about me. I want you to grow in your knowledge of me forever. Hi, Adam and Eve. See this tree over here? It looks a little different, doesn't it? It's not quite as beautiful as the others. Now that tree, Eve, no, do not touch, do not taste, do not eat. Adam, hear me. In the day that you eat, you will die. In the day that you eat, there will be separation between you and me. You will no longer understand each other fully. And there will be changes in your body. Adam, at some point, you're going to lose your hair. And Eve, you won't always look as beautiful as you do. I want you to demonstrate your, your love and gratitude to me by never touching that tree. There's only one rule, Adam and Eve. Only one rule. 
There's only one, do not. Etc. Now, you know the rest of the story. They just couldn't, could they? They just had to, they had to explore. They had to probe. They had to defy, they had to disobey. They had to join the kingdom of darkness. And in that moment, the Lord declared death. And in that moment, the seeds of death were sown in their bodies in their life, in their relationship. They were driven from the garden. And now there is a wall of separation between the creature and the creator. That cherubim and that flaming sword gives us two lessons. Number one, his holy justice. He's holy. What's that mean? He is without sin. Now, you know, we're, we're good Presbyterians. And we don't sin nearly as much as the PCUSA. And we tend to look at our neighbors, you know, well, there, there's Jim. Boy, does he cuss. Does he have a short fuse? Holy God. Oh, and, you know, Mary. She's a gossip. Oh, and see, see that house in the colors on David? I cannot believe a word he says. I am not like him. I'm not like her. See, we, we tend to measure ourselves. We tend to compare and contrast ourselves with other human beings. And we have this scale in our mind and we say, well, okay, Ten this week, but hey, you know, David at 24. How many sins did Adam and Eve have? One. One. One sin is enough to label me as sinful. One sin drives me from the presence of a holy God. One sin places me outside his friendship, beyond a flaming sword, where now there is enmity between me and him. Holy justice. Cherubim and the flaming sword also tell us about his amazing grace. You know, there was a second tree, wasn't there? If you read slowly and carefully the final verses of chapter 3 of Genesis, <clears throat> the major concern was the cherubim keep Adam and Eve from eating of the tree of life. The second tree. Why? If you were to eat of that tree, whatever your condition was, you would remain in that condition for eternity. So if our forebears had eaten of the tree of life, they would have remained and we would have remained in their sin for all eternity. But the Lord said, no. I am holy. But I am also gracious. And I will declare a way of escape. My friends, I don't care if you're Presbyterian, Episcopalian, or Westcapalian. We stand on level ground. We all start at the same place. Your suit may not be as nice as mine. You may have no suit. You know what? 
just don't make a hell of a mess. You and I have got to start right there. That's where I started many years ago. Behind, right side, the door. But now come with me. Come with me to the desert. Israel has been captured. They have been slaves. They've been in bondage. They've been in the evil empire. They've been under the, under the power of the dark Lord. And the Lord comes. He rescues. He saves. He delivers. And He brings them into the wilderness. He says, now Moses, look at this. Look at this. They're in tents. All tents. All small tents. Get in the helicopter and look down. You see this massive group of small tents. Pop-up tents. Lord comes to Moses. Moses, okay. I'm going to attend. I'm going to relate. I want a tent. But I want a tent almost as tall as the sanctuary in Lake Oconee Presbyterian. George Rundry tells me that's 35 feet. Well, the one in the wilderness was 42. That's a big tent. Come into that tent. The walls are all linen. Maybe Irish linen. All linen. Look at the walls. Careful. What do you see? Emblazoned, embroidered, entwined in the linen. Cherubim. 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 Everywhere. This is the tent of Cherubim. Here comes the Hebrew father with his family for morning worship. He brings them in, and as the, as the families meet, there's, a, there's a, a hum of conversation. And then the flap of the big tent opens. And in comes a man leading a lamb on a rope. It's the priest. He brings the lamb into the center of the meeting room. And you can see this is, this is a young lamb, not very old, maybe 14 days. No dirt. It's been loved. It's been fed. The kind you want to go over there and hug and stroke and pet. The kind you want to let lick you. And as you watch, the priest takes the knife. There, in your very sight, he slits the throat of that lamb. He slays it, he slaughters it. He puts a bowl under its neck and he gathers the blood that's gushing from its neck. He takes that bowl of blood and he goes to the altar and he sprinkles blood on the four legs of the altar. He comes back to the lamb. He skins it. He takes the carcass. He looks at the assistant. The assistant says, yes, the coals are burning hot. And he heaves the carcass on top of the burning coals. And the coals leap with flames and there's a sizzle and a fizzle as the lamb Then the smell of burning carcass begins to fill the room. It permeates. It's pungent. It's acrid. It's an awful aroma. My eyes are watering. My nostrils are filled with this awful aroma. I'm almost feeling nauseated. Now I can smell. Smell the aroma of my sin. It's ascending into the nostrils of a sinless, perfect God. Now I know why that door is closed. 
Now I know why the cherubims are here. Then the priest does something very, very beautiful. Something very amazing. He takes a second bowl and he casts the contents onto the burning carcass. And then there comes a new, sweet smelling aroma that permeates, that diminishes, that pushes that ugly smelling aroma from the tent and fills it with a sweet smelling aroma. It's pleasant. I can feel the burden of my shoulders roll away. I can feel the heaviness of my soul begin to dissipate. I can feel my neck rising up on my head, looking up. I can feel the heavy weight of my sin being removed. And I can feel the sense of God's invitation. Your sins can be removed. And as I share with my family later that day, I remind them, you know, the door is still closed. We are still separated from His holiness. But He's made us a promise of coming mercy. He's made us a promise that one day, yes, the Lamb of God will come. He will no longer be a, be a small, innocent, without spot and blemish creature. But it will be the seed of the woman. It will be the one to whom He's promised Abraham. And He will be the final sacrifice. And I believe one day... He will come and that, that door down there into which only the high priest goes only once a year, very briefly, and only he is permitted for those few moments to meet with God. I believe one day that whole thing is going to be thrown wide open and every one of us who believes can enter into his presence forever. Because of the Lamb of God. So Ezekiel's brought into that final temple. Ezekiel is carried beyond the final door of death and threw it on the other side and God showed him that there is this great eternal temple and God uses pictorial images to relate to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, what do you see? No more tents of linens. No, it's all wood. Beautiful wood. And everywhere... Everywhere, everywhere, cherubim, 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 cherubim. Ah, what in between? Palm trees, palm trees. Why the palm trees? Well, this temple is the place of those who are more than conquerors. You see, when they entered in, to the land of promise, the first battle was the city of Palms. We call it Jericho. It's called the city of Palms. Their first victory, the first realization of God's victory. You know, there was no sword, no ballistic missiles, no, no, no. Just praise the Lord. Down come the walls. Victory. This is the place of those who conquer by His grace. Now look at that cherubim. It's got two faces. The first one is human. Thank God. I need a man. I need a man like me to go behind the curtain, to take the two tablets of stone and say, Yes, Lord, I love your law. Yes, Lord, I will keep, I will guard, I will obey, I will follow. I will represent sinful mankind. But we need more, don't we? 
We not only need him to fulfill the demands of the law, but we need him to satisfy the punishment. And in heaven, the son said, yes, Father, I will go. I will go. And yes, I will be the suffering servant. I will be the Lamb of God. They can flog and scourge. They can crucify and put me to death. And you can lay on me the sins of all mankind. And we did that, didn't we? We took that punishment. But we need something more, don't we? Look at that cherubim. Two faces. The other one is a young lion. A young lion, thank you, Jesus. We need the king, don't we? We need the one who overcomes. We need the one who's from the tribe of Judah. The one whom Jacob promised. The one who will take the evil one. Who will go into the 40 days of tempting who will not yield like me. We need to walk through the dirt of this earth and show that he is Jehovah Rapha, the healer, Jehovah Jireh, the provider. We need him in that garden of Gethsemane, that final garden. We need him to pray great sweats that look like blood because he knows. Disciples, do not yield to temptation. Why? Because this is my hour when his greatest power of darkness presses on my soul. He wants me not to drink that cup. He wants me not to walk this mile. My Father, if possible, but not my will. Yes, the young lion conquers. He overcomes. And on that tree, when he's drunk the cup now of wrath, and when judgment is completed, judgment for my sins, for my iniquities and my transgressions, then in victory he cries out, To tell I, it is One door left. And this door determines if those cherubim and flaming sword remain for you or if they usher you in to the final face of friendship. Behold, I stand the door, and I knock. And if any person will open that door, I will come in, and I will dine with them. He never forces his way in. He never twists your arm. We call it the free offer. God's grace. But by the hand of faith you have got to reach and take that latch and say, yes, Lord. It happened in the city of Stavanger, coastal town in Norway. And the local clergy had invited John Stott, a famous English Bible teacher, to come and give a week to the local clergy. And Stott spent the week teaching them. They invited the whole city to come to the cathedral, 12th century cathedral, on the final night. Open worship. Stott knew that 
There wasn't much Bible teaching going on anywhere. And so I gave a very simple but very clear gospel presentation. And at the end, the bishop went down on the floor. And you know how bishops are. They're kind of overweight and they're portly and they got their robes on. And, and he's there, you know, he's inviting everybody on. And Jesus loves sinners. And, and, and take, take Mr. Stott's invitation tonight to know the love of God for Jesus. And at the back, there's some mumbling and murmuring going on. And there's a lady, and she slowly makes her way across the long pew. And the mumbling and the murmuring is getting a little louder, and, and now she's in the aisle, and she's moaning now, she's crying now, she's sobbing now, she's, she's crying out, and she's coming down the aisle, and folks are aghast, and they're thinking, oh, glory, she's going to attack the bishop. And now she's yelling out, Stott leans over to his Norwegian translator and he said, what is the woman saying? That woman is saying, I've got children out of wedlock. I'm a prostitute. I'm a drug addict. I'm scum of the earth. Are you telling me Jesus welcomes me? And she got to the the very bottom of that big stone aisle and the bishop held out his hands and she fell into his arms and he wrapped his arms around her and his microphone was still live. He said, my dear, Jesus welcomes sinners like me and like you. Will you come? Will you come through that door with confidence? Will you rejoice that the pungent smell of your sin has been dispelled? Now, through Jesus Christ, there's only a sweet smell. Oh, not of your life, but of his life. And his blood which is shed. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that upon Jesus has been laid our sins. Thank you, Lord, that the stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty, and now the door, the door, the door, Lord, is open. Lord, I pray this morning that you would move our hearts and you would draw us, Father, into your presence of love and mercy. And I pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.